establishing shalom. The Hebrew word peace is so rich. Last time we reached the summit of that upward journey from one blessed attitude to another. And we saw that each succeeding beatitude, in a way, built on the previous one. And somehow we need them all when we reach the summit to hear the call of Jesus become a peacemaker. How astonishing that all this teaching, all this development of character, all this establishing the basis upon which we are made right with God and how we can begin to live the righteous life that God requires as the fruit of our salvation, not, not in order to get saved. And all that Jesus has been wanting us to build in our character, he says it's for this one reason, become a peacemaker. Last week I spoke about that. Now, today, I want to go practical. I want to talk about the practical outworking of peacemaking. How do you go about making peace? Mending the broken relationships that are in your family. Mending the broken relationship within yourself. And then interpersonal relationships. And then perhaps be used by God to bring communities together, which are up to this point antagonistic to one another, misunderstanding of one another. Many years ago, 1987 as the year comes to me, I made my first visit to my birth nation, Kenya, since I left as a young boy with my family. We went to Tanzania and then to Australia. I have the privilege of going back, right to my father's birthplace, Nakuru. My father was born in Africa, I was born in Africa, my father, my father's father, my father's father's father, my father's father's father. We go right back to some of the early European settlers in the Horn of Africa. And I was born into colonial Kenya. But around about the time of my birth, there was a lot of upheaval going on. There was a kind of revolution, a move for independence. Justified, of course, some of it was violent. And at that time, the colonial community and the national community were struggling with each other. I must say that Britain did not dignify itself a great deal with the way it dealt with the Mau Mau uprising, which was the freedom fighters. But all that was history, as they say, and here I am, Nakuru. We go up the mountain, right up there in the Rift Valley, to a little place called 
Nyota Farm. And the first president, President Kenyatta, rewarded the freedom fighters by giving them all that land to farm. And there was I as a white colonial preaching the gospel in the middle of this. Blissfully unaware of history, history to me is gone, it all died at the cross, but my interpreter was a man called Jonah. And we became great friends. Not only did he interpret for me, sometimes he interrupted me to give his own version, particularly when he felt I was not communicating in the rural language and the stories and pictures. I, I would talk about motor cars, he would talk about, well, it's like a mother hen with chickens. So I said, I never said chicken. I know the Swahili word for cuckoo. I never said chicken. He said, no, 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 I, I'm interpreting you. Let me do my job. We became friends. It was a great, great bond between us. And I, I believe, here we have, I discovered he was the son of a freedom fighter, the son of a colonial, the son of a freedom fighter, one in Christ, enjoying fellowship. That is reconciliation. That is peace. That is the shalom of the kingdom. So... Um, the Bible says we've got to make it as much as it depends upon us to live at peace. Now, I'm not so sure our culture agrees. This isn't prevalent everywhere, but it's becoming increasingly so. That attitudes and words which don't make for peace or reconciliation, rather division is the preferred way of a whole bunch of people today influence the whole of our culture to sort of give an answer to problems of society, historical and present. Antagonistic. Putting one group against another. Victimhood has almost become deified. Victimhood is like an all-controlling all-encompassing worldview and heavily politicized. Identity, we've heard about identity politics, building identities around perceived and actual differences and injustices. Feelings first. Your feelings about the only truth left in our society, the truth you're allowed to believe in. And, uh, and what's more, my feelings and your feelings, if they're different, well, there's a problem. Because here's the idea. My feelings are true, and that should dictate to you your truth. That's actually the message. You can see it's fraught with difficulty, and it doesn't work. We're going to look at a different way today. Then there is this retributive element. Punishment and maintenance of anger and division. Not reconciliation is the answer. That leads to destruction, not to shalom. If there's anything that I would want to say and be heard, right across our society, it is what James says in chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God 
requires. That's the culture, and it's influencing many people in the church, many believers today. So what's God's answer? God's answer is peacemaking. And I want to share with you five ways, which drawn from the scriptures, of, for, for effective peacemaking. I'm going to give you all up front, so if I don't get to the last one, at least you'll have something. Number one, empathic understanding. Number two, recognition of the wrongs that have been committed on both sides. Number three, forgiveness both given and received. Number four, building a new relationship based on mutual appreciation, trust, and respect. But it doesn't end there. Number five, partnering together with common objectives. For us in the kingdom, it is serving God side by side. Now, get those from the recording or as, as I go through them, because that is a kind of blueprint that you can follow to resolve difficulties. Now, as far as that depends upon you, I can't guarantee you'll be successful in all cases, but you need to do your part. So let's begin. Empathic understanding. Marshall Rosenberg, a psychologist, a writer, not, is not a believer as far as I know, uh, but he's an expert on conflict resolution. He's written a book called Nonviolent Communication, Compassionate Communication. Some time ago, in his travels across the world, going to difficult places to speak about reconciliation, compassion, and nonviolence, he delivered a series of talks in the town or the city of Bethlehem. One occasion, he was speaking in a mosque at a refugee camp to 170 Palestinian Muslim men. When he stood up to speak, people began to recognize this is an American. He went round the place, this is an American. And one man got up so irate and stopped the speaker and said, murderer, assassin child killer, others joined in, about 20 people were shouting. So what would Mr. Compassionate Communication say now? Fortunately, he had some idea of what they were angry about because he himself had noticed scattered around the camp were the empty gas canisters that had been fired into this refugee camp marked Made in the USA. Wow. Martin Rosenberg explains the, the approach that he, he, he did. He said, I, I focused my attention on what people were feeling and needing. And I acknowledged their feeling and validated their feeling and showed how that feeling pointed to a need deeper than what was being expressed, but it was there. Let me give you an example. Well, they were talking about the bad conditions in the camp, and then um, Marshall Rosenberg said, I, I hear how painful it is for you to raise your children here. You'd like me to know that what you want is, is what all parents want for their children, a good education, opportunity to play and grow in a healthy environment. Response from that same man. 
That's right, the basics. Human rights, isn't that what you Americans call it? Why don't more of you come here and see what kind of human rights you're bringing here? Marshall Rosenberg. I see you'd like more Americans to be aware of the enormity of the suffering here and look more deeply at the consequences of our political actions, am I right? And so the conversation went on. Each time, Marshall Rosenberg didn't argue, didn't debate, didn't defend himself, didn't attack, didn't say, for example, excuse me, I never fired those here. But other people, I'm just because I'm American doesn't make me responsible for all of this. He could have been so defensive. But each time, every statement was made to him. He listened for the feeling and then verbalized what they were feeling and listened to the need behind it. Now, this obviously takes massive amount of self-awareness to know what's going on inside you. I don't know what you find. I find that that awareness of the other person's issue is not the first in my heart. When somebody's having a go like that, the first thing I'm aware of is what I'm feeling inside. This is not fair. Well, I'm right. You're wrong. You shouldn't do this. And you're angry. All that's going on inside. But you can come to a place in which you are so secure in Jesus that you know he's going to take care of your needs and your emotions. And and by empathy, you are going to enter into somebody else's experience. Put yourself in their shoes. Most frequently, we get under people's skin. But empathy says, get into their skin. Walk around. Feel like what it is like to be them. Then ask yourself, what are they feeling? What are they needing? And then ask yourself, how would you like to be treated? That's something so, something about Jesus here is, is so clear, so clear. So, if you come to the place where you allow God through all you, who you are in Christ, don't forget the, the whole of the sermon so far, the beatitude has been piling into your life, pouring into your life, the love of God, what he's done for you, the healing and restoration. Only a healed person can be a reconciler. Hurt people, hurt people. Healed people, heal people. When you allow God to fill up all of those internal deficits, deficits, especially the love deficit, where you know and deeply experience your security, your significance, and your self-worth, all come from being deeply rooted in the love of Christ and deeply satisfied in him. Then you're free to stop focusing on your needs, your thoughts, your emotions. You're free to focus on others and to reinterpret their violent communication through empathy. What are they wanting? What are they needing? So first of all, empathy. Number two, there has to be sooner or later a recognition, a truthful recognition of the wrongs that have been committed on both sides. Very, very rarely is it's 100% this person's fault, 0% that person's fault. 
But the problem is, we're all so much better at pointing out and seeing the, knee, the, the uh, faults of other people. It seems to be, because we want to justify ourselves, we can't handle the truth, and so, so we, we just point out faults in others. But in reconciliation, both sides have to acknowledge their own wrongdoing, their attitudes, their prejudices, their actions. What have I done to contribute to this conflict? What could I have done differently? And so it's so vital that people recognize their part in a situation. But let me tell you, this, this will work in any relationship, right? But I'm going to talk about marital relationship. Um, or maybe you're preparing for marriage. Get your notebook out, write it down. It's going to be a blessing later on in life, sooner or later. Okay, so let's <clears throat> set up a scenario here. You or I, we're in a, count, a marriage counseling situation. We are the counselor. And you have the husband at one end of the table, the wife at the other end of the table, and the body language says everything. So he said, well, we're going to begin this session by uh, talking about faults, things that have been done wrong. Now, the husband or the wife, soon one will jump in and say, well, I, I got this. My wife does this. My wife does that. She does this. And then, then they start arguing, and you've got conflict. It's very good they don't have their finger on that red button because they'd blow us all up. So he said, well, let, let me help you. So you get two pieces of paper, and the husband's name's John. So you say, John's faults and failings at the top. Write on the other paper, Susan, the wife. Susan's failures and faults. And then you give Susan's to John and John to Susan's. And they love it now because now he's got a chance to put down on paper. The Bible says, keep no record of wrongs, but now he's got enough records to fill a reference library. And he's just about to do this, and she's just about to do the same. Then you get a bit theatrical and say, oh, oops, sorry, I've given you the wrong, the wrong pieces of paper. No, no, I've got mine, John. No, 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 that belongs to, that belongs to, uh, 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 yeah. John belongs to John's, and Susan belongs to Susan's. If you give Susan's to John's and John to Susan's, you change it around. Did you get that? Did you get my point? I think I um, confused that a bit, but you're right. Okay, so... What you do is begin with John, and you say, now, John, write down your faults. I would rather write down Susan's faults. Well, no, but she's going to write down hers. You write down yours. And then, first one, John says, well, I'm very frequently late home in the evenings. I told you so, Pastor. I told you it's always that. Wait, 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 wait. And then hers is... I always nag him about the grooming the dogs. Yeah, I told you, Pastor, she always does that. 
But when they finish the list, it goes quiet after a while. Then you swap the pages over and you say to John, look, um, these are Susan's lists. Do you agree? Yep. Susan, these are John's lists. Do you agree? Yep. Instant agreement. Instant agreement. But uh, there might be a couple of things to add to both lists. Do you know what that does? That takes the focus away from blaming others and accepting our responsibility. Jesus t- teaches, um, actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, not in the Sermon on the Mount, a little later on, he teaches this, look, take the log out of your eye so you can see clearly to help your brother with the speck in his eye. In other words, take your part in this situation as the most serious part for you and accept responsibility. If people just followed that, we would have far less conflict in the church and in society. All right. Now then, forgiveness. Forgiveness must be given and received. We're commanded to forgive as God has forgiven us. Reconciliation cannot happen without truth and justice. So there's speaking up. But not on every point. Um, Don't forget the Bible says, love covers a multitude of sins. Most of the stuff that annoys us and irritates us or we get offended at, we can just take to Jesus because there's better and more important things to talk about. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love keeps no records of wrongs. However, there are times when you cannot be silent and must not be silent. How would you know the difference as when to keep this to yourself and God forgive in the privacy of your relationship with God? And when do you have to raise it? When do you have to confront? Well, that's a big question, but the answer lies in this kind of direction. When that person's behavior is harmful, when it's abusive physically, emotionally, mentally, When, it, when, when they're a danger to themselves or hurting other people, something has to happen. You can't let that go. And it's your responsibility to speak up. And here's something. The kind of passive people somehow don't have enough experience of their love and security in Christ, and they can kind of say... I've just got to absorb this. I've just got to take it. I, I, I don't deserve anything more than this. I deserve it. I deserve this bad treatment. In dealing with families and situations where there's domestic abuse, nearly always the person being abused finds it difficult to speak up about it for fear, but also something else goes on. It's far darker and more sinister 
It's, well, I deserve this. There's such a poor, broken sense of self-worth. So it sometimes takes bravery and courage. And if you're in a situation like that, which is serious and, and, and dire, talk to somebody. Talk to somebody who can help you, a mature Christian, your cell leader, somebody who can help you. So before you get to forgiveness, you got to see what needs to be forgiven. Simple as that. Can't say, oh, I'm just going to forgive. You, and, and that sort of clears it up. No, stuff has to be acknowledged. But when it is acknowledged, what you have done wrong, you need to receive forgiveness for that. And there is no better way than saying, please forgive me, I've, I did this and that. Often, what happens when you're trying to talk to somebody about this is they say, oh, well, I'm sorry if I offended you. Ah, that is so so bad on so many different levels. And that's the go-to defense mechanism when we are in conflict. I'm sorry if I offended you. It's your fault you're offended. And I'm sorry that it's your fault. I'm sorry, but it's your fault. Now, let me get this language sorted out. Can you imagine, listen to this, you're driving in a car and you shouldn't be speeding, but you're speeding. And you get stopped by a policeman. He's about to give you a ticket. And you roll down the window and say, I'm sorry if I offended you, officer. Sir, you did not offend me. You committed offense against the state. You broke the law. You didn't offend me. You broke the law. You offended the law. So before people say, I'm sorry if I offended you, think about what they're really saying. If they, if they mean, I'm sorry I sinned against you, I offended against you, take it. If, on the other hand, you were so touchy and you, you, nobody can look at you without you getting offended, feeling offended, that's taking offense. So don't take offense. Try not to give offense. But when you've given offense, take it back and ask for forgiveness. Both sides. Both sides. Forgiveness. All right. Number four. Building a new relationship based on mutual appreciation, respect, and trust. It's not enough just to say, well, that's done now. I've said sorry, you're sorry, um, uh, and that's it. But I never want to talk to you again. Now, there are times when you do need to cut off all contact from toxic people. You do. So this is not an absolute rule. But as far as it depends on you, Building a new relationship based on forgiveness and reconciliation is essential, especially in the body of Christ. Dr. Jay Adams, the professor of counseling where Amanda and I trained a number of years ago, he said this, few things are sapping the strength of the church of Jesus Christ more than the unreconciled state of so many of its members. Think about that. We give offense, take offense, become offended when we shouldn't be offended. We we don't even sort it out. We just blow up and we go and find another church. And by the way, you meet people on the way to this church being offended in the other church. And just give it a few years, we mix and match. 
That is appalling behavior. It is not the kingdom of God. Amen? Give it a chance. Build a new relationship. But it must be based on, let, let, let's start with respect. Value one another. But sometimes you look at somebody and you say, dear Jesus, help me to find anything of value in this person. Well, I love them. Well, you're, you're God. I died for them. But listen, even before that, Every single human being on this planet has been created in God's image. Do you know that the Bible teaching on the image of God is the historical foundation for human rights? Did you know that? It's not a humanist thing in the first instance. We recognize the value of each individual person as image bearers. God created that person in his image. That image in them and as in you is distorted sometimes. You need to do a lot of investigating to find it. But actually, you should be able to just grant it. Say, you are a human being, and I am going to give you dignity and respect, I won't coerce you, I won't manipulate you, I won't use violent words, actions, I won't do anything, if I can help it, to damage you. I'll encourage you, receive you, accept you. Mutual, mutual respect and appreciation. You know, there are times when difficult situations when you've had these kind of open talks and, and sometimes you need counselors to help. Anytime I've been through something like that, you know, at the end, when there's reconciliation, I have so much more appreciation of the person than I had before. I think, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't see that side to them. Now I understand. And trust. Now, trust has to be earned. But also, building this relationship is what peacemaking is all about. You're not just peacekeeping. It's not just peace at any price. Now, peacekeeping, sometimes you parents know that that's the only option. You've got one kid here screaming and shouting, the other kid, all you can do is get in front of them and just keep the peace. Go to your room, go to your room. Uh, but that's not a solution. All you've done is kept the peace. And the United Nations, the largest, most visible representation of it is this peacekeeping mission. They will go into dangerous situations as peacekeepers drawn from lots of different nations, uh, protect civilians, prevent conflict, reduce violence, strengthen security, do everything in their power to strengthen the national um, authorities so that they can assume their responsibilities to move beyond peacekeeping to peacemaking. So building this new relationship will take time, appreciation, respecting their needs, being curious, being curious. 
Even people who are difficult to take. You know, there's a reason why people are so as they are. Do you know that? Oh, yeah, it's the Bible calls it sin. Well, we put the sin in the bin, but what's left? What's left? You have no idea what that person has experienced in their life. And curiosity, we teach this in our soul, soul, soul talk course. Curiosity, not judgment, judging. Only this kind of reconciliation, building together a new relationship, can take us to the final step, which is partnering and working together. This is a big problem. No, that's a big problem. Actually, put the two together, you have a very big problem. So you say, all right, let's work on this together. And not just on the problem, but our common objective. Most people want generally the same thing. Most people. They want a better world. They want to build something which is better than what we have for society. And certainly for us as believers, there is no agenda that trumps the agenda of the kingdom of God. Why do we bicker and fight and divide and criticize and judge? You can't work together like that. It's the army shooting itself. But beyond building a new relationship is, if it's possible and appropriate, partnering together, working with some common objectives. And for us in the kingdom, this means serving God side by side. Very often it means laying aside differences. Half of them, half of them don't matter. There were two churches in conflict, two senior leaders, and each senior leader one side of town, the other believed it was the other person's fault. And there were people trying to bring reconciliation. Anyway, years went by, and um, one of the chief negotiators, reconcilers, he deserved to be in the United Nations, that's for sure, said to the guy who was the most offended, the most upset, you know, how's that going? He said, oh, well... It's fine. What do you mean it's fine? Oh, it doesn't. It's, it's, it's fine. Well, what happened? What was it all about? You know, his answer was, do you know what? I don't really know. Sometimes the things that seem the biggest can be actually quite trivial, can be one thing that's not handled properly that just goes on and on and on. That's how marriages break down. Laying aside differences, sometimes agreeing to disagree, uniting in a common purpose, going from enemies to fellow soldiers. We see a reverse of that, of uh, fellow soldiers becoming enemies. In Russia, now I saw a documentary when they were talking about the Cold War and whatever is left of that, uh, and this Russian lady, a wise, wise Russian lady, 
She said, we fought on the same side in the First World War. We fought on the same side in the Third World War. Now we're fighting each other. What's happened to us? Wise words. Now I want to see the reverse of that. Enemies who fought against each other now joining together to be friends for the sake of the kingdom and the blessing that comes. Back to Jonah at Nyota Farm. The sequel to that story was not just one of friendship, forgiveness, kingdom, relationship. It ended far, far better than that. Somewhere in the Bible, it says how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. For there, God commands the blessing, even life forevermore. I want to tell you, I'll try a little bit, but I won't get far because you might think I'm exaggerating. In those three weeks that we partnered together, travel from place to place, preach together, live together, laughed, cried together, stood together in the unity of the kingdom of God, God poured out on our ministry an extraordinary blessing of the miraculous. We saw literally blind eyes opening. Deaf people were healed. And there were, in fact, in those three weeks, just a small number of people out of dozens, if not scores, who were healed, as far as we could tell. Just a few weren't. That's another story, but what I'm saying is that this is why God wants you to learn how to resolve conflicts, to restore broken relationships, to learn to use love and reconciliation, to establish the genuine shalom of the kingdom, because there God will command the blessing. There his presence dwells, and there we become who we truly are. One body, united in Christ. Peacemakers to the world. (laughs) 